Welcome to Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. My name is Bella, and for this week's episode, we have Dr. Mimi Lilia Holm. Mimi is an associate professor in the Department of Cognitive Sciences at the University of California, Irvine, where she directs the Learning and Decision Neuroscience Lab. Mimi and her lab study a broad range of topics, including agency, causal induction, habits, altruism, and social transmission. She is interested in studying how humans discover and represent the predictive structure of their environment, how such knowledge shapes cognition, perception, and motivated behavior. Mimi and her lab study a broad range of topics, including agency, causal induction, habits, altruism, and social transmission. She is interested in studying how humans discover and represent the predictive structure of their environment. How such knowledge shapes cognition, perception, and motivated behavior, and how these processes go awry in addiction and psychopathology. In addition, Mimi adopts a multidisciplinary approach and draws a wide range of methods from psychology, neuroscience, economics, statistics, and computer science. In this episode, we discuss Mimi's research on agency, instrumental divergence, social conformity, and how these constructs apply in our daily life. We also discussed how Mimi's current research helps us further understand artificial intelligence and what researchers can do in future studies. In the end, Mimi shared a take-home message with the audience for people interested in psychology and students who wish to pursue a career as a psychologist or neuroscientist. And without further ado, here's our conversation. Hi, Mimi. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's a great pleasure to have you here.、Um, Hi, Bella. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, of course. So,、um, to get us started, would you mind first give us an introduction of your lab? What do you study? Right. So, very broadly speaking,、uh, what we study in my lab is how humans and other animals potentially.、Um, Discover and represent the predictive structure of their environment. Now, by predictive structure, I basically mean any、uh, prediction about what's going to happen based on the information that you currently have.、Um, how does that? So, basically, a model of all of the contingencies in the world,、mm -hmm. uh, and how does that model of the world, that in internal model of the world, inform? Cognition, perception, and motivated behavior, and how are those processes dysregulated in、uh, pathologies like addiction or, you know, uh, uh, psychotic or neurotic disorders? That's awesome.、Um, do you have any projects that's been going on in the lab that you can tell us about? Yeah, I'll say very quickly too that you know I am. A psychologist at heart, I always start with a psychological construct that I'm interested、mm -hmm. in, and then I try to come up with clever、uh, behavioral experiments to kind of manifest those phenomena that I'm interested in studying. And、mm -hmm. once I've done that, I usually try to formalize the underlying、uh, process, and then if we can, meaning、uh, build mathematical models, and 
If that works out, then we usually put people in the scanner to see if we can identify those neural computations. Um, So that's kind of the the approach in terms of methods. Uh, Mm -hmm. Neuroscience and computational cognitive modeling are tools for me. They're not an end in themselves. Uh, And I can get quite political about that because (laughs) I feel like in the field, they are becoming, well, neuroscience, of course, can be an end in itself. It's not for me. Computational cognitive modeling, I think, is only valuable when it informs uh, a theory about a psychological construct, not when it's modeling for modeling's sake. So I'll just get that in there. Um, so as I was saying, uh, you know, I'm interested in, in how uh, we kind of map out predictive structure. And, and at the core of that is this distinction that we all know about from our uh you know, statistics and research methods 101, which is correlation is not causation. Statistical mm-hmm. regularities don't necessarily reflect genuine causal relationships. So one major line of research in my lab uh, addresses how we can distinguish between kind of uh, spurious associations or even reliable associations and true causal relationships. Uh, And um, more specifically, I'm interested in what kind of a priori assumption we bring to the table uh, in order to interpret kind of covariation to make that decision about whether that covariation reflects causality or Mm -hmm. not. Okay, that's really awesome. And uh, I'm just curious, what drew you to this field? How did you decide on studying um, <laughs> causality and then using this computation on neuroscience approach? So, I mean, it's been a long journey. <laughs> I was, I, I mean, I, if I start from the very beginning, I think that my, my initial interest in psychology just came from literature, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, uh, most of literature um, involves kind of a study of the human mind expressed by the authors, you know, interpreted, put through their creative uh, and intellectual filters. And I was an avid reader. And what really drove my my passion for reading was my interest in psychology. Um, And then, like most people, when I thought about psychology as an academic area I thought about kind of psychoanalysis and, mm-hmm. and abnormal psychology and so right. I went into it kind of with that uh, expectation and then I became more aware of um, behaviorism which you know spends very little time speculating about uh, what's going on in the black box and just focuses <laughs> on how we can shape behavior through uh mm-hmm. Uh, reinforcement and punishment through through mm-hmm. uh, contingency schedules, and that was interesting to me. And I did realize pretty quickly that you know I was interested more in that kind of experimental side of things and not so much yeah. the clinical. And then I took I remember this very well. I was an undergraduate uh, in the psychology department at UCLA, and I took the course cognitive psychology with a professor named John Hummel. He's an uh, mm-hmm. Anna now. And I was just like blown away by it uh, because he was brilliant and funny and the problems that he was interested in just spoke to me. I think if I would have taken that class with 
other professors, I wouldn't have had that experience. And the whole field might have passed me by. It would have been about recall and retrieval, you know, then I would have just not been into that. Um, But because of the interest, because John's interests overlap with mine, it just like triggered something in me. And I knew at that moment, that's what I wanted. Oh, wow. Thank you for sharing. That's a great story. Yeah, it was (laughs) an epiphany. It was a great experience, you know, having trudged through undergrad knowing that there was a reason I was doing it, but never mm-hmm. quite feeling that resonance to be mm-hmm. in that uh, lecture hall and feeling that stuff just like, you know, set off all these bells in my mind. It, it was great. Yeah, that's awesome. And I know um, by reading your papers, I know you, you're interested in many different research topics. And then your lab does cover a broad um area of different kind of research from um, agency and go-directed choice to causal induction to social conformity. So what is the coolest thing about your research? Have you ever discovered anything surprising to you in these um, different areas? I mean, I might have discovered things that are surprising to others, but really because of the way that I operate, I always start with something that's very intuitive to me Mm -hmm. and that makes sense to me. And so uh, usually I'm not that surprised if it comes out other than, of course, most of uh, experimental psychology doesn't work out. I mean, it's a lot of work because you have an idea about a construct, meaning some, some process that you're hypothesizing but to then you have to dig through all of the extraneous variables. When you set up an experiment, there's so many factors that you're not thinking about because you're thinking about this thing that you're interested in. And a lot of experimental science is just peeling away all of these extraneous things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I thought, you know, about this a little bit uh, because I have been asked this question before. And I think one of the things that might be surprising about my work a little bit, and, and I hope very informative, even if it's not my favorite part, is that uh, when I started studying agency or instrumental divergence, and we'll dig into what that means, yeah. uh, I was doing neuroimaging and this brain region, the supramarginal, specifically the right supramarginal gyrus of the parietal lobe kept popping up. Now, this is an area that's... Um, right on the border, kind of posterior, and Mm -hmm. on the border between the temporal lobe and the parietal lobe. Uh, In fact, in in some areas of research, uh, uh, specifically theory of mind, people call it the temporal parietal junction, so TPJ. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's part of the inferior parietal lobule. Um, I noticed this area popping up a lot. And the reason that that was interesting and a little surprising is because it's not an area that's traditionally studied with respect to uh, reward-based learning and behavior. Now, I was studying agency, but I was doing it in the context of reward. And it seemed like this area was involved in integrating reward information with information about agency. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the reasons that that's important is because when it comes to fMRI, um, which I use for my, uh, you know, uh, neuroscience uh, uh, research, uh, it has a lot of issues. You know, we're measuring the hemodynamic uh, 
function. We're not measure, measuring neural activity. And mm-hmm. there's been a lot of issues about replicability, although some of these effects are really amazingly replicable. But uh, one of the perks of, of fMRI, even though it's just correlational and not causal, is that you can look at the whole brain and you can identify new areas that might be of interest. So mm-hmm. almost all of the research I do maps on to stuff that's being done in animal conditioning literature. There's a lot of overlap and there they work mostly with rodents and they can do very mm-hmm. targeted things. And they're always targeting the striatum and mm-hmm. uh, frontal lobe. Right. And I don't know what's going on in the parietal lobe of rodents. I barely know if they have one, but I know that it's not something that someone, you know, an animal researcher would just go and do because unless maybe if they were working with monkeys, but in the rodent uh, uh, research, that's not an area that's paid any attention to. And uh, with fMRI, we can kind of identify regions that you could do fMRI on rodents too, but because there's so much overlap, I think even finding this area in humans, the mm-hmm. right supramarginal gyrus, and then once I started to get into it, I found that it's also been implicated in, uh, uh, besides theory of mind, a lot of kind of agency-related experimental paradigms, and then also reward-based learning and decision-making. And I'm, I'm very curious to see what would happen if you try to find uh, an analogous area in the rodent brain and can start looking at how it relates to animal conditioning phenomena. Mm-hmm. So finding that area and having it pop up so consistently in these kind of economic choice tasks and reward learning tasks that I was doing was surprising. And uh, I'm, I'm uh, very interested in seeing if we can parlay that into maybe a mapping out of kind of a novel region in the rodent brain that we can then um, do more invasive uh, tests with and relate to basic conditioning phenomena. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to say that maybe to you, this doesn't seem like it's surprising because you've been following your intuition uh, in doing these research. But uh, from an outside observer's perspective, it is really fascinating that you found a connection among all these topics and you brought them all together. So um, I'm really well, curious to I'm hear happy more. To hear that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, they are all related, right? So when mm-hmm. I said, you know, we're looking at how you discover predictive structure. And at the core of that is whether that structure is just covariation or causation. So that's one topic. But then everything we do involves predictive structure. When you interact with friends, you expect them to behave a certain way. Some of their behaviors reinforce you. Some of their behaviors put you off. Mm -hmm. You might enjoy in a hedonic way interacting with a person and then you get kind of sated. And how does that influence your decisions about how to move from one group of friends to another? Mm -hmm. Even social phenomena like that, that we don't usually think about as having to do with causal learning or predictive learning Mm -hmm. are entirely supported by that world model, you know, that internal model of contingencies. And so starting from there, it's Mm -hmm. very easy to branch into uh, a lot of different phenomena. Right. That is absolutely right. So um, let's dive in. So the yeah. first topic that I want to spend some time talking about is agency and goal-directed choice, which you've mm-hmm. mentioned already. Mm-hmm. So let's just start with the basic question. What is agency? You know what? That is like a series of 10 podcasts. 
So I'm going to try to be fair here. Uh, um, agency has really has been addressed quite extensively in philosophy and in contemporary right. philosophy. There's uh, something called the, the standard story, which is the motivating. Uh, uh, sorry, the, the uh, dominating account. Mm-hmm. And according to the standard story, basically, you know, you have desires and then you have what they call means and beliefs. That is ideas about how to achieve the outcomes that you want. And when you perform a bodily movement that is caused both by a desire to obtain some outcome and a belief that the movement will obtain the outcome that reflects agency. As it turns out, that's very that maps on very closely to psychological theories of goal-directed choice, but it's not a one-to-one mapping. And psychological theories of goal-directed choice um, postulate very much the same thing, that goal-directed decisions are decisions that are motivated by the value of some outcome and the mm-hmm. probability that your action will achieve that outcome. So mm-hmm. when you perform an action because you have thought about what the consequence is and you want that consequence, then we say that you're goal-directed. You can see how there's a lot of overlap there. But in again, uh, theories, psychological theories of goal-directed choice are not really meant to address agency per se. And instead in psychology, a lot of the literature on agency is just focused on the experience of agency, not the Mm -hmm. metaphysics of it, not the nature of agency, but just the uh, um, phenomenology of it, the, the, the sense of agency as it's called. So that's a lot. Uh, <laughs> let, let's leave that there and just mm-hmm. say, um, when I use the term agency or when I have, and I have a paper where I try to map all these things together, the philosophical uh, metaphysical account of agency, mm-hmm the psychological theories of goal-directed choice, and then my take on it, which is what I call instrumental divergence. Right. I'm basically saying, and I've actually recently discovered that there's an analogous construct in uh, artificial intelligence that's called empowerment. uh, Mm -hmm. That's mathematically equivalent to my uh, instrumental divergence theory. So that's really interesting because it's a segue into AI, which I'm always interested in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but so when I when I have you so I have this construct instrumental divergence conceptually it's just how different are your actions with respect to their outcomes imagine a vending machine where regardless of which button you push mm-hmm. you're very likely to get coffee you may get tea yep. you may right. there's a small chance of getting orange juice and that happens regardless of which button you push here you have no I mean, you have some control because if you don't push a button, you get nothing, right? Right. In terms of like the different buttons, performing different actions on that machine, Mm -hmm. the outcome distribution is the same. Mm. That would mean that you have zero instrumental divergence. But if instead one button is very likely to give you coffee, Mm -hmm. less likely to give you tea, and the other button is very likely to give you tea and much less likely to give you coffee. Or we can even make it deterministic. One button gives you tea, one bu- button gives you coffee. That's maximal instrumental divergence. Mm, meaning the choice has already been set. Meaning that, no, meaning that different actions that you perform have very different consequences. 
if I push the left button, I get coffee. If I push the right button, mm-hmm. I get tea. So that means mm-hmm. that I can decide which but which action to perform in order to transform the future into what I want it to be, a coffee mm-hmm. future or a tea future. Make sense? Yeah, Unless yeah, I had yeah. a wonky machine, there was something wrong with the wiring. So regardless of which button you pushed, you're most likely to get coffee. Or let's say that the machine flips every day. So on some days, regardless of which button you push, you get coffee. The next Mm -hmm. day you get tea, regardless of which button you push. Now you might like coffee and tea the same. So in terms of the value of these buttons, according Mm -hmm. to uh, conventional theories of uh, economic choice, and importantly, according to rational theories, meaning theories that are supposed to tell you uh, how things are supposed to be computed, All of those theories would say, um, as long as you like coffee and tea the same, Mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter if one button that you press gives you coffee and the other button that you press gives you tea, or if you're as likely to get either, no matter which button you press, because you like both the same. Right. What I'm saying and what I've shown is that actually, even if you like coffee and tea the same right now, those preferences will change. Because the subjective utilities of natural rewards are constantly fluctuating based on hedonic and homeostatic Mm -hmm. principles. And so all else being equal, you should always prefer an environment where you can use your actions to produce different outcomes. Wow. Even when all the outcomes are equally valuable to you, you could think ahead kind of and think, yeah, but that's going to change. And so I want to be in a situation where I can control the world Because then as my preferences change, I can change my behavior to change the world according to those preferences. Yeah, that is really interesting. It reminds me of um, my mom used to tell me when I was a kid, every time we go out of the house, she's always asking me, uh, did you bring your water bottle? And then I always say, no, I'm not thirsty at all. Why would I bring a water bottle? And then five minutes outside, mom, I'm thirsty. Yeah, exactly exactly what you said. Yeah, we always, we cannot really rely on how uh, uh, much we desire something at any given moment because Mm -hmm. the next moment we will have changed our minds. Yeah. We always want to be in a situation where, you know, we're kind of planning for those changes and preferences. And the best way to do that is to be in an environment where you can really control the outcomes using Mm -hmm. your actions. Yeah. Right. Would you say that this ability to think ahead and, um, and make plans is evidence that people have agency and that objects don't? Well, I, I don't want to conflate planning with agency because we're always planning, but I'm talking specifically about planning for changes in outcome values. And actually mm-hmm. there's a shortcut. You might not have to do that kind of planning and this is still up in the air, but mm-hmm. another thing you can do. So in, in this recent paper uh, that I'm you know, working on right now, um, I'm comparing these two approaches to instrumental divergence. So there are two things you can do. You can either say, um, uh, I I know that, you know, I'm always going to want to be able to change my environment according to fluctuating preferences. And so if I just choose environments with high instrumental divergence and we can formalize that using information theory, like have a measure Mm -hmm. of how much instrumental divergence there is, 
I'll just use that uh, as a shortcut. I don't have to plan for every possible outcome value. I will just say, well, if I have an environment, so you're going to say, well, I'm just going to go to a place where if I want some water, I can get some water. And if mm-hmm. I want some food, I can get some food. And I'll be in control of which one I get when I perform different actions. And so I don't have to worry about whether when I get there, I want food or water or mm-hmm. coffee because everything is there and I'm going to be in control of which outcome happens, right? Mm-hmm. Then I don't have to worry about, well, what am I going to want? and How are things going to fluctuate? I'm going to make sure that I'm going to be in a place where no matter how much I like one thing over another at that particular point, it's going to be up to me to choose. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. That's one way. But another alternative is that you think about how valuable some places that you're going to, and then you plan for every possible change in outcome value. How much would I like that place if I like water when I get there? How much would I like it if I hate water when I get there, right? (laughs) Right. And it's possible that you do both, that sometimes you use a shortcut and just represent Mm -hmm. how much flexible control you're going to have. And don't worry about thinking about the exact values of outcomes. And -hmm. sometimes maybe you plan for changes in outcomes. Yeah. It's really interesting to think about all these thinking happen in our mind within like a a blink of a second. (laughs) Not necessarily a conscious process. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Also, I going back to the concept of agency, I I was just curious, what do you think about pets? Do you think pets have agency? Because sometimes I feel like they do, but then I don't think they have the ability to uh, think ahead and plan different outcomes. But do you mean pets as opposed to wild animals or do you mean animals? Oh, just animals in general. Animals, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, well, again, I mean, agency is, uh, means different things to different people, different scientists. Mm-hmm. Agency right now is not a thing as a construct, but it's like a bucket of things, right? So right. instrumental divergence, sense of agency, the, the metaphysical. But if we go back to kind of the, the philosophical uh, definition of agency as having the desire for some outcome mm-hmm. and performing an action because you think that it achieves that outcome, then 100% uh, even ants probably have agency, right? Yeah. Not necessarily. I won't, I, I'll take that back, but I'm willing to go with <laughs> rodents. For yeah. sure, rodents plan their behavior and they they have, they, they make decisions because of the value and the probability of the outcomes. They will say, I will press this lever because right now I want sucrose pellets and this lever gives me sucrose pellets and this lever gives me grain pellets. Now, if mm-hmm. I did one of my experiments on instrumental divergence on rodents, which I am planning to do, my husband is actually a behavioral neuroscientist. He works with rodents and oh, this awesome. is one of the projects that we plan to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they, that, that they would be very much like humans. And, but just going back to what I said at the top of this, how hard it is to be an experimental scientist and get rid of all the extraneous stuff. It's a million times harder with, when you're working with uh, non-human animals and especially like rodents, they are scared. So my, actually, when I was in graduate school, I had two lines of research. I was in cognitive uh, psychology department working on causal induction with Patricia Chang. 
Mm-hmm. And then I was in the basement working on kind of behavioral neuroscience and learning and behavior with Bernard Berlin. And what I was trying to do was have the rats do this kind of complex puzzle stuff that I was having, you know, that humans could do. And I wasn't yeah. able to do that. Um, so those experiments kind of failed, but I still believe that they failed because I, I didn't come up with a clever enough way of testing it. Not because it's not because rats really can't do causal induction, because I think every uh, organism has to uh, in order to adapt. And, mm-hmm. and otherwise you have to be kind of completely pre-programmed. But if you have to live in the world and make flexible decisions, then you need some level of causal induction. But it's very hard to demonstrate. So I, when it comes to your pet, <laughs> I would operate on the assumption that they um, are very similar to you in the way that they look at, at goals mm-hmm. and desires and ways of achieving those things. They don't have thumbs. They're not going to be able to cook a meal. But <laughs> if they could, they would, you know, if yeah, they physiology, physiology for it. They certainly have the ability to plan, to identify desirable outcomes and to do everything in their power to achieve those outcomes. Yeah, that is really fascinating. Okay. Um, so earlier you mentioned in um, AI, there's a concept called empowerment. Mm-hmm. So can you uh, talk more about that? I'm really curious about that. I kind of just discovered that. I know empowerment is so funny, too, because it's like a, it sounds like a feminist manifesto or something, <laughs> but it's yeah. a guy named Daniel Polani. So I came up with instrumental divergence. Uh, and again, conceptually, it's just how different actions are with respect to their outcomes. Mm-hmm. But I uh, formalized it as the information theoretic distance between outcome probability distributions associated with alternative actions. And Mm -hmm. that's mathematically equivalent to the mutual information between actions and outcomes. I know this is a lot of math speak. I'll just say mutual information is how much you can. So if you, if you see an outcome, how much does that tell you about what action was performed? So Mm -hmm. let's go back to the vending machine. If one button gives you coffee and the other gives you tea, then if you see what the liquid is like, oh, it's coffee, you know which button was pressed, right? Right. That's maximal mutual information. You can you can determine with, uh, you know, certainty what the value of one variable is, the buttons, button one or mm-hmm. button two, based on observing the outcomes, outcome one and outcome two, coffee or tea. Then you have maximal mutual information. It's basically correlation, but for non-quantitative variables. So it turns out that, you know, empowerment, uh, uh, Daniel Polani, this guy in AI, he defined empowerment as the mutual information between actions and outcomes, which is mathematically equivalent to how I formalized the instrumental divergence. And we have the same idea. We both uh, are basically saying all else being equal you should maximize instrumental divergence or maximize empowerment because you want to have flexible control over your. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I actually, because I'm not in computer science, I wasn't really aware of Daniel Polani until recently when someone invited both of us to a symposium and I said, let me check this guy out. And I looked at it <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, this is instrumental divergence. And so it's funny though, because he is in computer science. He has very different goals. Mm-hmm. from 
you know, what I have, he doesn't do, he doesn't make any predictions about whether or not humans or other animals are maximizing empowerment or instrumental divergence or how that shapes cognition and motivated behavior the way I have studied. He's doing it in the domain of AI. And even in that domain, he is kind of, um, not done some of the things that that I have done in humans. And so now I'm backtracking and I'm making sure that the stuff that I have done experimentally in humans, showing, for example, that they prefer environments with greater instrumental divergence over environments with less Mm -hmm. instrumental divergence, all else being equal, there's really a trade-off where you could say, I get a little bit more money here, maybe, but Mm -hmm. I have no flexible control. Here... Uh, Oh, sorry. I have flexible control, but I get a little bit uh, less money here. I get more money, but I have no flexible control. So if things change, I'll be screwed. Right. And then Mm -hmm. people seem to be able to recognize that. And they opt for having some flexible control when they know that they're in a dynamic environment. I'm trying to do that in AI now, because Mm -hmm. even though there is this similar construct empowerment, a lot of that research hasn't been done. So I'm hoping to develop, you know, to, first of all, translate my experimental work in humans into, uh, uh, you know, uh, AI algorithms and reinforcement learning mainly. Yeah. And then kind of merge those two fields when it comes to this idea of flexible control and how it informs decisions. So currently there is nothing like a representation of flexible control in AI, in reinforcement mm-hmm. learning, other than what Daniel Polani did with empowerment. But he just made that point kind of that like empowerment is useful, but he hasn't played it out in um, looking at reward maximization mm-hmm. in artificial agents. And that's what I've done in human. I've looked at how humans reward maximize by uh, treating flexible control as an intrinsic reward. Oh, interesting. So I'm hoping that as we merge these two lines of research, we'll, we'll be able to maybe, in, you know, um, introduce some explicit level of agency in artificial agents and that that will really increase their autonomy and turn out to be a very useful thing. Yeah. I, I've also worked, you know, other things that I'm working on in humans is, So we talked about what it means to be goal-directed. It means that you represent the outcomes of your actions and you think about how much you want them and then you decide whether to act. In psychology, this is contrasted with more reflexive behavior, which we call habits usually. And Mm -hmm. those are actions that are automatically elicited by the stimulus environment just based on reinforcement history. So Sometimes, you know, let's say that you drink coffee every morning. And of course, as you do that, the caffeine is a reinforcement signal that is going to uh, strengthen the relationship between kind of getting up in the morning, seeing that coffee pot and making coffee. Mm -hmm. Let's say last night you were at Starbucks and you had way too much coffee. So Mm -hmm. you actually have a bit of an aversion to coffee right now. But maybe as you come down the stairs into your kitchen, you still walk up to that coffee pot and you start to put the coffee in, maybe until you smell it, and then you go, actually, wait, I don't want coffee. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? Yeah, totally. Why did you walk up there and start making coffee if you don't want coffee? We call right. that a habit. The stimulus environment is telling your brain, yeah, 
you know, this is something that's been valuable in the past. You should probably do it. And then you just mm -hmm. do it without thinking. And then you have to stop yourself and go, no, wait a minute. Coffee isn't valuable to me right now. So I shouldn't be engaging in this activity. And then mm. you get, then you're goal directed again. So one big question in psychology and AI is how do we switch back and forth between being goal directed, which is called model based in reinforcement mm -hmm. learning and being habitual, which is called model free in reinforcement. Mm. How can we arbitrate between those two response strategies so that we can be habitual or model free when we're in an environment where things aren't really changing dynamically because being habitual, being model free, just relying on stimuli in the environment to trigger responses based on reinforcement in the past, it's very cheap mm -hmm. computationally, right? right. It take almost anything. Whereas being goal-directed, you have to retrieve what are all the possible outcomes? What are all the actions? What are all the possible outcomes of each action? What are all the current values of all those possible outcomes? Now I got to multiply the probabilities and the utilities, and then I got to average, and then I got to compare my actions. There's a lot. Mm -hmm. So right. sometimes we want to be goal-directed and sometimes we want to be more reflexive. And how can we decide which one to be? And my theory is that we can use instrumental divergence because if you don't have flexible control, being goal-directed actually doesn't gain you anything. It doesn't allow right. you to adapt to changes in the environment because you're not able to control outcomes. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that would be so interesting to see how you combine these two areas together. I will definitely stay tuned. <laughs> Sounds um, good. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That was really exciting. Um, I haven't heard anything like this, so this is really fascinating to me. Oh, cool. Yeah, well, look up Daniel Polani and look at his mm -hmm. work in AI and then read some of my stuff on instrumental divergence and you'll see that there's an almost yeah. perfect overlap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I did read your agency and go directed choice paper oh, cool. and I see that um, at, towards the end you mentioned you haven't really touched upon how actions are acquired, but I'm still curious to get your um, opinions on the developmental trajectory of agency. Uh, do you think that children have this ability to um, to do these kind of things or when do they develop this ability? Do you have like an intuition on that? Well, first of all, so just to mention, when I wrote that paper, I had yet to learn about Polanyi or I would have definitely cited <laughs> him. So as I yeah. talk to him, my papers going forward, I talk about him and his work. Um, and I also want to mention that when I talk about the acquisition of actions, I don't mean developmentally. I mean, you can imagine going into space right now and mm. everything, you know, physics works differently and you have to figure out how to interact with the environment in a new way. You're an adult, but you have to acquire new actions. We have to create like that kind of strange scenario because as adults, we almost know everything there is to know about how to use our limbs to interact with right. the environment. But you can imagine being in a situation where all bets are off and you have to re relearn. A, a more common, unfortunately, situation is if you have a stroke, you actually mm. forget how to grab things, how to do things, and you have to relearn them, right? Right. So here again, instrumental divergence plays a critical role because if actions don't have different outcomes, are they even different actions, mm. right? Maybe 
actions are actually discovered based on the degree to which they produce different outcomes. So we collapse movements that don't produce distinct outcomes. They all get collapsed into a single action category. And we differentiate only between movements that mm -hmm. transform the world in different ways. So that's a, a you know something we're working on testing right now. And again, of course, it, it becomes that the most important applied area there is probably uh, clinical uh, medical uh, work in, in rehabilitating people with stroke and traumatic brain injury. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to, you know, I'm not a developmental psychologist and it's really pure speculation, but just watching my own kids, I would say uh, that first of all, when even when in utero, you know, when mm -hmm. when you your mommy's belly, you have this experience that like you push and then there's a sensation, right? You mm -hmm. do something and there's a specific sensation. So you're already developing these connections between you deciding to do something and then the world around you change, changing, right? Maybe you kick and then uh you know, there's all this movement. So you try mm -hmm. it again and there's all this movement. So just those very basic ways that you can impact your environment, you're probably learning even in utero. But then yeah. I think that that one of the biggest, you know, one of the most critical aspects of early development is figuring out what you can control and what you can't control, right? Mm. Um, That's right. And uh, I don't know if, and I, it's such an interesting question, if the process of discovering that is what creates the uh, representation of agency, or if you come into the world ready to sort things into, uh, you know, agency or not. Uh, in some kind of modular fashion that you've, you've evolved to prioritize making that distinction. Yeah, I, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot because it happens so effortlessly. So I really, I really don't know like when children start to be able to. Um, Another thing that's related is that one thing we see in psychology is that when it comes to almost anything like that you're learning or that, you, that uh, involves memory, if mm -hmm. you can intervene and do it yourself, you learn a lot better. So if you're right. studying, for example, you have some tutorial and it just pops up problems for you and you're just following along. That's not as efficient as if you get to decide what problems. And there could be many reasons for that. Part of it is that you know what level you're at so you can calibrate mm -hmm. and do exactly the problems that fit your level of performance best. But another thing that's uh, different about um, performing actions and that when you say, you know, it comes so naturally, one thing that is clearly innate, that's just part of our system is that unlike when we observe things that happen in the real world, when we perform actions, we already know that the action is going to happen before it happens, right? So mm -hmm. even if that, again, doesn't mean that it's accessible consciously, but your body right the action and then executes the action. And that might allow us 
to make more efficient causal inferences when it comes to actions. And that might be why we carve the world out according to uh, the, you know, our ability to transform it, how much of an impact we have. It might just be that because we process the action before its outcome, whereas if we're just observing things, like you might hear the ding, 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 and then the train comes. But it might take you a while to realize like, oh, the ding, ding, ding comes first, and then Mm -hmm. the train comes. All of those things where we have to just pay attention to an array of stimulus information, and we don't necessarily encode all of the temporal aspects or all the sensory features. It's very complicated to make causal connections. But when we make uh, uh, the decision to perform an action, we're kind of ahead of the game, and Mm -hmm. that might facilitate... Uh, causal inference, and that might be why it's so effortless. Right. Yeah, that's great insight. Thank you so much for clearing that up for us. Um, another thing I was curious about is, um, I know you also study social conformity. Mm-hmm. How does this tie into agency and causal that's a induction? Great question. Yeah. Well, um, so. I think the relationship with agency is really interesting because conformity is kind of the opposite of agency. You might have it exercising it. Right. Yeah. And so why would you do that? And, and, you know, going back 50, 70 years in social psychology, the the basic um, idea put forth by Dutch and Gerard um, was that, you know, there are two reasons you conform. One is that you think that other people know something that you don't. Mm-hmm. So you treat other people's decisions basically as a proxy for what's mm-hmm. going to happen. And the other is that we're social animals and it's actually rewarding for us to align with the majority. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I guess to the extent that you make a decision to, and conformity is kind of, you know, loosely defined as kind of ignoring your own judgment in order to align with other people's judgments, whether it's because you think they know better or because you just want to be part of the group. But doing Mm -hmm. that kind of is a decision. And in that sense, you do have agency. Yeah, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah, so you might make an informed decision that, Either that um, I would rather just be part of the group and have that fussy feeling of safety or whatever it is that's kind of rewarding, that gives you, you know, a positive affect. Or you might make a decision that like, I think that all of these people, if they all say this, then I, I probably, I'm probably wrong. I'll go with them. Both of those are really examples of exercising agency to achieve the outcomes that you find desirable. So in that sense, they are not separating each other the way right. that you might see. Yeah, they're not contradictory in the way that they might see. Yeah, they're definitely all related. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I know that you wrote a paper on social conformity, um, the expression and transfer of valence associated with social conformity. So what did you find in this study? So one of the things, and I'm, I'm still working on this. I mean, that wasn't a perfect example of it, but, but we are, I'm, I'm pursuing this, this line because as I said, 
uh, very early on, social psychologists were saying, well, you know, it could be that you're looking for information or it could be just mm-hmm. support. And actually, in a decision-making scenario, it's very difficult to tell those two apart, mm-hmm. right? Because right. if I'm looking at other people's decision and I say, I was going to do this, but I'm going to go with this, how can we tell if I'm doing that because I find it rewarding to be part of the group or because I'm doubting my own judgment, right? Yeah. And so one of the things that we try to do in that paper with that task was to use condition reinforcement, which is an old uh, animal conditioning phenomena where, you know, um, environmental stimuli or actions that are paired with reward become rewarding in their own right. And so if being associated with the majority gives you a good feeling, then contextual stimuli should absorb some of that good feeling. And Mm -hmm. later, you should actually want to approach those stimuli. And that's what we found. And so that tells us that at least to the extent that joining a majority um, makes environmental stimuli, contextual stimuli, suck up some positive affect that later support you choosing those stimuli over others, that probably has to do with the hedonic aspect of conformity, not the informational one. So Mm. that was the major goal there with, I think that's the second study in that paper, but it's really to dissociate the informational aspect from Mm -hmm. the uh, reward aspect. And now we're um, taking that a step further by showing people the actual outcomes of the, the counterfactual outcomes. So you make a decision and let's say, let's say you have two options, you pick one and you see, then we show you, you got $3. And had you picked this other one, you would have gotten zero. Mm -hmm. So we're showing you that like you did make the right decision. Mm -hmm. And we still show that if you went against the groove, that's not as rewarding as if you would have made that decision and had the group agree. Um, and again, using presenting the counterfactual information is a way to kind of get rid of the uh, role of information seeking. You don't have to wonder, did they know better if they picked the other option? Did I do mm-hmm. the wrong thing? Because we're showing you, no, you were right. Mm, uh, and I then see. we kind of isolate just the rewarding aspects of majority alignment. I see the, mm-hmm. the need to conform to the group. Right. We're trying to rule out that you're doing it because you think they are right about mm-hmm. something and you are wrong because we're showing you. No, you're yeah. right. You picked the right choice. Yeah. You were right and they were wrong. So if you still kind of feel uh, bad about it, it can't be because you think they knew something you didn't. Right. Right. right or maybe right, okay. you do. I mean, maybe you could always make the case like maybe you still think that and there is a limit to what we can do experimentally. But the goal of this line of research is to use uh, psychological, you know, uh, uh, procedures from experimental psychology, like counterfactual information, mm-hmm. like condition reinforcement, to try to tease apart informational and rewarding aspects of conformity. Mm-hmm. That is very interesting. I've never thought about separating those two uh, reasons 
to look Let at why people do that. something else, just throw it in there, that mm-hmm. as with agency, this is something that I definitely plan to uh, uh, translate into artificial intelligence problems because mm-hmm. just like we're social beings and we need to cooperate and we need to compete and we have all these social biases, some of them might be adaptive, some of them might be useful, and there are lots of AI problems where you have multiple agents that have to coordinate their behavior, that have mm-hmm. to agree. What yeah. can we, how can we use what we're learning about these tendencies to conform and the reasons for conforming in humans to um, come up with an optimal strategy for conformity that can mm-hmm. maximize uh, reward in an AI system? Wow. That that's so interesting. I can't wait to see um, how that research goes in the future. Um, yes, yeah, that translation to AI with social conformity mm-hmm. is, is a little, uh, you know, <laughs> into the future because we're still really involved with the humans. But that's the goal ultimately. Yeah. So, would you say that's the future direction of your research? Yeah, that is one mm-hmm. certainly one of the things that we plan to do with this social conformity research program. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so we are almost at time. Okay. So just to wrap up, I wanted to um, ask, so after learning all about the cool research you do today, what would you like the audience to take away from our conversation? Like some key points to take home with? Hmm. I mean, it kind of depends on who the audience is. If yeah. a psych student, you know, if it's a graduate student in psychology, I would say one thing. If it's a lay person, I would say something else. I'll, I'll do both. quick ones for each. So yeah, okay. so I will say for the people who are in other disciplines and who don't spend any time thinking about psychology and neuroscience, I think the best way to communicate what we do is through vision, because vision is such a dominant modality for human beings. So mm-hmm. You know how we're walking around and we kind of feel like we're sitting inside our heads and we're looking out through these two holes yeah. in the world around us. But of course, that's not it. Everything yeah. that we see, everything we perceive, everything we experience, every conversation, every boo-boo, every, you know, uh, euphoric moment, it's all in our heads. Yes. And the first Absolutely. step to understanding the field of psychology and neuroscience is to grasp that, to step out of that really overwhelming sense of looking out at reality and being in reality and grasping that all of that that appears to be outside, it's all inside. Mm-hmm. That's my message to lay people who wonder what psychology and neuroscience is about. Mm-hmm. For psych and neuroscience students, I, my message would be this. I mean, it's not about any particular research finding at all. It's, it's really about the approach. I would say um, just stay true to what you're interested in and curious about, and the rest will follow always. So mm. nothing that you learn in terms of methods or techniques are going to make you a good psychologist or neuroscientist. They will help you, uh, but what makes you, uh, you know, the scientist that you're going to be, whatever level that's at, is going to be your ability to follow your uh, 
natural curiosity and intellect to lean into that and go wherever that takes you. And that's also, I think the most enjoyable way of doing it. So that's yeah. Yeah, that's very insightful and very refreshing to hear that. <laughs> Thank、I'm、you、glad. so much for sharing that. Um, okay, so we are at time now. I want to thank you again for joining me on the podcast today. I really enjoyed our conversation. It's very inspiring and very fascinating. I'm、and、so I'll, glad. I yeah, adding too. Look, you don't have to ask me twice to talk about my research <laughs> for it. So anytime. Thank you so much for tuning in. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or our podcast in general. You can click on the link to the survey attached in the show description, or reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast@gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsychpod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or other platforms so that more people can find us. Thank you so much.